Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 332. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor for 2018, Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for the new monthly Slow Flowers Journal section, which you can find in the pages of Florist Review. It's the leading trade magazine in the floral industry and the only independent periodical for the retail, wholesale, and supplier market. Take advantage of the special subscription offer for members of the Slow Flowers community at deborahprinzing.com, where you can also find the show notes for today's episode 332. Before we get started, I want to let folks in the Seattle area know about an upcoming opportunity to meet and participate in a fun event that I'm co-hosting as part of the We Flourish team on Tuesday, January 30th in Bellevue. It's called Galentine's Party. And the focus is on you and your personal and business branding as a creative. You'll experience an art-filled, nurturing, and stimulating pre-Valentine's Day party as We Flourish handles all the details. We'll take away the stress of planning and provide you with all the ingredients for relevant, eye-catching, personalized content, images, and words that reflect your brand and connect with your audience in the lead-up to Valentine's Day. In addition to a delicious meal provided by our venue, Fogo de Chao, we'll make sure you have resources, materials, tools, and other supplies to make a romantic floral arrangement, style a flat lay vignette, photograph a number of visual stories, and write the best captions to wow your followers. More than half the tickets have been sold, so if you want to get in on the fun, follow links to the Galentine's party that I'll share at today's show notes for episode 332 at deborahprinzing.com. Okay, let's dive into color, into ultraviolet to be specific. When I type ultraviolet Pantone in my Google search, within seconds, no fewer than 3.2 million options pop up. There's no denying that Pantone's Color of the Year campaign, one that began as a conversation about consumer sentiment at the turn of the new millennium, has become one of the most anticipated and influential announcements in the creative industries, from floral and fashion to manufacturing and media. And of course, that means floral design, flower farming, weddings, and events. Announced with much fanfare on December 7th, 2017, here's more about this alluring hue, according to Press Material. A dramatically provocative and thoughtful purple shade, Pantone number 18-3838 Ultraviolet, communicates originality, ingenuity, and visionary thinking that points us toward the future. Complex and contemplative, ultraviolet suggests the mysteries of the cosmos, the intrigue of what lies ahead, and the discoveries beyond where we are now, 
The vast and limitless night sky is symbolic of what is possible and continues to inspire the desire to pursue a world beyond our own. Enigmatic purples have long been symbolic of counterculture, unconventionality, and artistic brilliance. Musical icons including Prince, David Bowie, and Jimi Hendrix brought shades of ultraviolet to the forefront of Western pop culture as personal expressions of individuality. Nuanced and full of emotion, the depth of Pantone's ultraviolet symbolizes experimentation and nonconformity, spurring individuals to imagine their unique mark on the world and push boundaries through creative outlets. Historically, there has been a mystical or spiritual quality attached to ultraviolet. The color is often associated with mindfulness practices, which offer a higher ground to those seeking refuge from today's overstimulated world. I'm incredibly excited to share my exclusive interview with Leatrice Eisman, Executive Director of the Pantone Color Institute, and the spokeswoman for the annual selection that, for the third consecutive year, has been revealed first in the New York Times. I first met Leatrice, or Lee as she is often called, when I attended a Color Trends presentation that she gave to interior and fashion professionals here in Seattle, probably in the late 90s. Since then, I've interviewed her a few times, including for a story that ran in the Los Angeles Times home section on turquoise, the color pick for 2010. Last week, Lee and I met on Bainbridge Island, a short ferry ride from Seattle, and over dinner, we discussed ultraviolet and some of the psychological and sociological reasonings behind this epic selection. We then recorded this interview, and you'll want to listen closely for the way Lee describes ultraviolet as a now color, especially the emotional power it imbues on our moods, settings, design palettes, and more. Click over to the show notes at deborahprinzing.com for episode 332 to see photos and find links to more about the Pantone Color of the Year, as well as to order Lee's new book, The Complete Color Harmony Pantone Edition, which we also discuss. It's a perfect handbook to inspire and inform designers and artists with Pantone color palettes and harmonies that express a variety of moods, among them nurturing, transcendent, provocative, and delectable. Lee will also discuss the exclusive workshops she leads at the Eisman Center for Color Information and Training, headquartered on Bainbridge Island outside Seattle, including the four-day color design course coming up April 26th through 29th. I'll share links to all her social places at today's show notes, including more about the color workshop for creatives. Here's more about Leatrice Eisman. She is a color specialist who has been called the international color guru. In fact, her color expertise is recognized worldwide, especially as a prime consultant to Pantone. Lee has helped many companies, from small one-person startups to large corporations, make the best and most educated choice of color for product development, logos, and identification, brand imaging, websites, packaging, point of purchase, interior and exterior design, or any other application where color choice is critical to the success of the product or environment. Lee heads the Eisman Center for Color Information and Training and is also executive director of the Pantone Color Institute. She's the author of countless books on color, among them Colors for Your Every Mood, which was chosen as a Book of the Month Club selection and received an award from the Independent Publishers Association. The Pantone Guide to Communicating with Color, The Color Answer Book, More Alive with Color, and Color, Messages, and Meanings, a Pantone Color Resource, which won the Create Awards Best of Industry Award. 
Lee was included in the group of 50 top style makers for the fifth year in a row by Home Furnishings Now, the leading home furnishings trade magazine. This year, HFN divided the top 50 into four categories, and Lee was fifth of 10 in the outside influencers category, ahead of both Steve Jobs and Rachel Ray. In 2006, Fortune Magazine named Lee as one of the 10 top decision makers for her color work. And in 2009, Fortune again featured her in an article titled The Color Committee Goes to Work, where it discussed her international leadership role in color forecasting. She conducts many color seminars and is widely quoted in publications such as El Decor, Home Magazine, House and Garden, Home Accents Today, HFN, Harper's Bazaar, Allure, Women's Wear Daily, Glamour, Vogue, People Magazine, Self, Communications Arts, Graphic Design USA, Consumers Digest, Us Magazine, Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, USA Today, and Ad Age, as well as numerous other trade and consumer publications. And of course, now on the Slow Flowers podcast. Lee has made appearances on all major TV networks and cable channels in the U.S., as well as some abroad, and she's been interviewed by radio stations worldwide. The Pantone Color Institute is a consulting service within Pantone that forecasts global color trends and advises companies on color in brand identity and product development for the application and integration of color as a strategic asset, recognized around the world as a leading source of color information through seasonal trend forecasts, custom color development, and palette recommendations for products and corporate identity. Pantone Color Institute partners with global brands to leverage the power, psychology, and emotion of color in their design strategy. So let's meet the woman behind Ultraviolet. And I know our conversation will inspire you to look at the power of color in your own work. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, and I am delighted today to introduce you to my guest, Leatrice Eisman. Hi, Lee. Hi. Thank you for saying that you'll join me and talk about what else? Color. And I'm so glad that you and I live in the Puget Sound so we can see each other face to face. I don't know if you've been under a rock, but if you have, you may not know that Ultraviolet is the color of the year, the Pantone color of the year, and this woman is personally involved in naming that color. Can you describe what you do, Lee, and how intimately you are involved with Ultraviolet? Well, I am, among other things, the director of the executive director of the Pantone Color Institute, and uh, have been doing that for many years. And one of my jobs is to um, help to come up with the color of the year, which is something that we did not do in the early days of the uh, Pantone Color Institute. But interestingly, in about 1999, we found that people started to call us and to say, uh, tell us about the new millennium. What, mm. what color represents the new millennium? Mm. And people were beginning to understand that color has emotional meaning, that there are moods that are attached to color. And it's interesting because in 1999, we were all looking forward to the new millennium, but at the same time, we were fearful of, you know, the clock stopping and all the things we were told were Our going to happen. computers crashing. Exactly, that, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So people look to a specific color to kind of explain what that was all about. And oh it was gosh. like a big aha moment for us when working with Pantone to have people inquire as to what color was representative, what color was symbolic. 
And we thought, you know, this is something we really need to address. And so as a result, we started to do color of the year kind of slowly, didn't talk about it very much. And every year, incrementally, it started to grow bigger. People wanted to know the color of the year until now. Here we are, 19, 19, 2018. Talking about the color of the year, and all these years later, the fascination continues to grow. It is, Lee, it's out of control, this Mm -hmm. obsession with, like, the buildup of anticipation Mm -hmm. and the second-guessing and the, the, I don't know, P, maybe the bookies are in on this and the odds makers, you know, like, (laughs) when will that big reveal occur? And Mm -hmm. um, I was... I, I was telling you over dinner that there were a number of people in the floral industry who had were determined that there would be some yellow shade that was revealed and announced by you with the Pantone Color of the Year, and here it is, ultraviolet. Mm-hmm. Um, can you describe what that color is and um, you know why you what led to the the selection? Well, the color always has symbolic meaning. Okay, there's no question of that, and so we look very deeply into the mood that the color enacts, what it says to people, and what it reflects in the way of what people are telling us Mm. they feel their needs are. So it's not just a question of what's coming down the runway, what is looking hot and glamorous and so on. That, That all enters into it. There's no question we look to fashion. But at the same time, we are looking to the emotional meaning. And people Mm. were telling us that they felt it was a time to be a little bit more creative, to look ahead, to forge ahead, to not be as concerned about what's happening today because there is a lot that's happening around us that that we do have to look at and be concerned about. But what is hopeful? What what Mm. can we look forward to the future? Mm. And ultraviolet was, in our minds, the perfect color to express that. It is the color that expresses a feeling of uh, where we're going ahead, the color of cos- the cosmos, mm. color of meditation, the color of contemplation. Mm. The most interesting thing about the ultraviolet family is that purples in general are made up of red and blue. I love that. You pointed that out to me, and I thought, how can two diametrically opposed colors come together and be something really engaging and, and uh, affirming on in a, in a way? It's just part of color theory, I guess. It is. It is. And as you mentioned, diametrically opposed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. However, what you get out of that marriage of the blue and the red is an entirely new color. You have purple. And that's the magic of purple. The fact that it has a complexity, it's not a simple color. You really have to think about it. You have to contemplate it. Uh, Some people don't have a problem with that. They love the idea that it is so... It's a color of ingenuity Mm -hmm. and innovation. Um, Others might have a bit of a problem, and we acknowledge that, Mm. because if it were simple red or simple blue, they get it. It's kind of literal. Exactly, very literal. This is a much more thoughtful color. Um, You were saying that ultraviolet specifically is a little bit um, more of a blue tone than a red tone. Is that right? Yes. This is a purple that leans a little bit more to the blue side. Now, that doesn't mean we're ignoring the fact that it does have a red undertone, which always brings a bit of excitement to the color. Nevertheless, a bit more of the blue brings that thoughtful concept into the color. It is a color that we think of as a little bit more spiritual, Mm. 
a little bit more meditative, mm-hmm. one that we really have to take some time and think about, but sort of takes us out of ourselves, takes us into the realm of imagination and creativity. Is it the color of individuality as well? Absolutely the okay. color of individuality. Okay. Um, because it does take some understanding. It takes someone who has a bit of a spirit of adventure to venture into this color, to want to adapt it, to try to use it. Uh, and for those who are a little bit more timid about the color, I say to them, this is the time to have fun with it. This is the time to, to practice, to, to utilize it. Um, <laughs> By one scarf in ultraviolet. Exactly. exactly <laughs> Go wild. <laughs> exactly. You know, a pillow, something you throw on the living room sofa and you walk by and you look at it and you say... I'm liking that more every day. I th- I could live with that color. <laughs> I love that. Well, w- one of the things that you said that just blew my mind, and I had not thought about it, was that there's this um, blending quality or I don't know, harmonious quality that that um, in the purple spectrum. And I think this would be of interest to floral designers. Can mm-hmm. you can you explain that a little bit? Why purple and ultraviolet do that? Well, it's interesting because you have such a complex color, the blue and the red coming together to make purple. What you find is, and I have found this absolutely fascinating over the years, whether it be in your clothing or the way you decorate your home or the way you put your flowers together, you can take any tone of purple, be it to the cool side, to the warm side, put them together, and they all blend. Mm. They're beautifully monochromatic. They each have their own level of meaning, and yet they don't fight with each other. Mm. So if you have that you know, beautiful vase that you want to fill with with the purple flowers, whether it be something to the warmer side or the cooler side. Right. Uh, it can be absolutely beautiful. It's mm. not the challenge that some other color families often have when you perhaps you look at your green and you say, well, I don't know, this is awfully yellow and that's awfully blue. And by the way, I don't have a problem with that either. And I, and that's my mantra to people. Don't, you know, don't say I can't use the yellow greens and the blue greens together. Let's experiment. Let's have fun with it. Let's, let's um, use our ingenuity to see where we can go with this color combination. But purple in particular seems to be the easier color to do that with, and people get it. They understand I love that. it. I love that idea of the like a blue-purple with a more pink-purple, um, not clashing, but kind of belonging together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you did bring up the green conversation, and I can't let you go without talking about 2017 and greenery, because in the floral world, in the slow flowers world, there were whoops of delight and you know, applauds, like standing ovations that you chose greenery <laughs> last year. Can we just like do a little way back time machine and talk about that briefly and, and what that meant, uh, that color selection meant in, at, for 2017? Obviously, it was an election year, so maybe yes. there, was, there was a different zeitgeist. Yes. Well, you know, green always represents a, a fresh, new feeling, a different approach. And I think that's what people were hoping mm, for. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also is so much attached to the whole environmental mm-hmm. movement. And people now completely understand how important it is to preserve our planet. Yeah. Uh, and to also, from an aesthetic standpoint, <clears throat> I've always loved to talk to floral designers because of all the people in the world, people who love flowers and love to put them together, get it. When you say to them, green is Mother Nature's most ubiquitous color, it is the perfect neutral shade, you don't have to convince anybody in the floral world of that. 
Great. Because you know you can add green to every combination that you have, and it it belongs perfectly. Right, because we see it in nature. Exactly. Right. Exactly. That that was so freeing. That, and and uh, I I guess I'm curious to know will that green. Um, thread continue on? Do colors continue on from year to year? And because I was telling you over dinner that the floral world was very excited about Marsala as well, because the people were yearning for color. So how, how do these, what's the life cycle of these colors of the year? Uh, do you see them continue on? We absolutely see the colors continue on. And I like to say to people at the end of the year, December 31st at midnight, it doesn't fall off the ends of the earth. <laughs> it's um, no longer, ban- it's not banished. Exactly, yeah. exactly. What happens is when people start to utilize color uh, to a greater extent or they start to use the color of the year, you know, there's a practical aspect of it. You brought these wonderful green dishes, Mm -hmm. uh, something for the tabletop, Mm -hmm. placemats, whatever it is, and you really, really love this color. The last thing you want to do is get rid of it. We're n- and we are no longer a throwaway society. Right. We Which have is what learned. The green is about, right? Exactly. We want to hold on to what we have. So this unleashes our creativity at the same time. We look at green of 2017, and now we're looking at it with the purples of 2018, mm-hmm. and we're saying, wow. I really love that purple stemware against the green placemats, or I've huh. never thought of doing that together. Mm-hmm. And it, and with flowers, of course, mm-hmm. putting those purple flowers against the green, how can you go wrong? Right. So I'm glad that you happened to ask me that question, <laughs> because I am a big believer for the reasons that I mentioned, the practical, the aesthetic. Um, let's continue to use the color, but let's tax our ingenuity to see where we can go with the color. Sure. And, and with trends in general, um, there are regions of the country that adopt our early adopters and regions that maybe trail. So you probably have this, I don't know, two to three year conversation about color and they just keep overlapping or how does, what do you see happening with like in the, you said you were talking, talk to people in the fashion world, in the home products world and, um, uh, in beauty and of course in, you know, I hope in floral, I mean, do, do this, is there sort of the staggering effect or is it just, um, raising awareness of a color and hopefully getting people to get excited about it and then keep just adding and building to that. They're not, they're not pivoting away from a color. Right. There is less of that Mm -hmm. expression. Oh, that's so last year. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Which makes me crazy when I hear it because (laughs) I don't think it's, uh, you know, of course it was big last year, but it can continue on and it's up to you to find the way to utilize it. Uh, and I, you know, you mentioned areas of the country mm-hmm. where people might mm-hmm. be um, a little bit more reticent, mm-hmm. not as adventurous. I don't know if that's true or not. I just, I well, hear that Well, you know, sometimes. it used to be more than mm-hmm. it is now. Okay. I, I think what's happened is that people go online, they watch television shows, they see the potential of what can happen with color. And they are being a little bit more experimental regardless of the area that they live in. Um, and I, of course, I love it. In the end, yeah. for me, the most important thing is to start a conversation about color. Well, and it's so we are in that technology uh, access world where everything can be immediate. And I'm sure on December 7th, when I think that's the date you said mm-hmm. you announced the color, and mm-hmm. we talked about the fact that the New York Times did a big story for the third, third year in a row, it is immediately broadcast globally when you predict or announce 
or proclaim the new color. So that's right. And you know, it's so interesting because I happened to go to Asia and I was there on December 7th and I was releasing the color of the year. And of course, some people had been online (laughs) the evening before. So it was kind of anticlimactic, (laughs) but still they, they do want to hear the reasoning. But here I am in Seoul, in Tokyo, uh, and in Shanghai. And they are just as excited as people in New York and Chicago and San Francisco. Wow, that's exciting. Um, One of the things that I want to talk with you about is a little bit of the emotion of color because it's you you are um, your roots are in color psychology and um, education. And how have you seen, I don't know, like our, I don't know, emotional awareness of color? continue or maybe grow since you started consulting with Pantone and you're a you know longtime educator so you've you've watched this sort of color become an acceptable mainstream topic right yes exactly and it's a good question because i do find that in general terms older generations might have a little bit of a problem because they were taught in certain ways. You know, I can remember my mother saying blue and green should never be seen. And really? As, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and even as a child, I thought I'd go to the park and I'd see the beautiful green meadow of the park and look up at the beautiful blue sky. And I think about what my mother just told me. <laughs> and, uh, and even then I was kind of, you know, I, I'm not sure I understand that. What's that about? So the rules are kind of, re- you're like not about rules at all. You, you use the word guideline, which I loved. Exactly. In, in my books, I talk about guidelines. Um, I don't ever like to limit the uh, accessibility that people have to reach back into their own imaginations and their own hearts uh, to think in terms of the colors that they really love and not to be so rule bound, mm-hmm. but to think in terms of guidelines. And guidelines are nothing more than helping you um, validate perhaps a color combination that you've always loved or you've wanted to to play with, to have fun with. Um, I give you the reasons why that is a good possibility. But again, in the end, a lot of it is tied to the emotional meaning of the color. And how do you determine that? Because you've written a lot about the mood and the emotional um, kind of visceral response people have to color. Wrap my, help me wrap my head around that. How, how, how do we attach moods to colors? Is that just an age-old um, kind of non-spoken thing or that you're now putting words to or well I don't think it's an age-old thing I think okay. what's happened is that we have more discussion about it and we okay. understand it more Back than to we conversation. ever did before yeah. but uh, you know a proclivity to a, per- a certain color can come from a lot of reasons mm. it can come from your culture the area you were raised in what your mother taught you what you have learned uh, color trends there are so many things that enter into what eventually makes a mood for a color. We deal with um, those of us who work with color, uh, and in, in my books what I explain is that we deal with what the intrinsic meaning is to a greater majority of the people. I see. Um, for example, sure. blue is the first thing that pops into my head. Okay. Anywhere in the world that you live in, and you imagine that a blue, beautiful blue sky is something we look forward to. Even if this sky, as in the northwest where mm-hmm. we live, is covered with gray clouds, ultimately those gray clouds are going to open up. We're going to see that gorgeous blue sky. We're going to be able to go out and play. And our mommy said to us when we were little, it's a beautiful blue sky day. Go out mm-hmm. and play in the garden, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, 
so we have these ideas, these concepts. But in addition to that, there's a certain physiological concept of color. Um, you see the object of your affection. Uh, he walks by. You get a pink flush to your lips. Uh, mm -hmm. That is physiological. That's something we can't wow, contain. Right. Uh, so there are many, many reasons why we have these feelings about color. But ultimately, you put it all together, and out of that, you build a body of knowledge that gives you certain concepts of what blue means, green means, yellow. In the end, if you had something terrible happen to you as a child, and that idea or concept is attached to a certain color, I might have a little bit of a problem convincing you that that's a color you should use. But my concept is to keep people a little bit more open-minded. Let's look at the reasons behind it. Let's talk about it. That might have happened when you were a child. Is it still applicable today? I'm just laughing because the stories you described about your corporate consulting and that sometimes it goes all the way up to the CEO just having some kind of knee-jerk response to a color that, that probably is right for a product or something. Mm -hmm. You do a lot of therapy in the boardroom, I would imagine. <laughs> Yes, that's a good way of putting it, <laughs> therapy in the boardroom. When, you know, I've worked so hard on getting a color palette together for a particular company, and I know that it's, I sense that it's really right for them. And anybody that works with color that's had this challenge understands it. Mm -hmm. And then the CEO says, no purple. Right. Why not? Why not? Why, why no purple? I hate the color. Well, but that gives you the opportunity to engage this, this person in a conversation. What is it about purple? Why, why don't you like it? You play the therapist. And what you eventually find out is that it might have been something that happened to traumatize him when he was five years old. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with the success of the color for a particular market. And mm. that's what you have to be able to do. You are the therapist. I feel like that's excellent advice, for, especially for floral designers who are uh, dealing in, especially in the wedding industry, it is very emotional. And so you have to figure out how to hold someone's hand as they're selecting color or, um, you know, maybe break the bad news that that color peony doesn't exist or, you know, whatever it is, there's a lot of, a lot of just raw emotion that's involved. So mm -hmm. absolutely, this is what you write about in a lot of your books and mm -hmm. you teach in your workshops. And um, I, I want to let listeners know about Lee's newest book, and um, it will be, is it out now? Yes. Or, okay, can you talk mm -hmm. a little bit about it? It's called The Complete Color Harmony, uh, Pantone Edition. Okay. And so it's filled with Pantone colors, and uh, in addition to that, it was published by Rockport Quarto. Okay. And it should be available through your bookstores on my website. Uh, Great. You know, it's, we'll put all uh, those resources on the show notes. What, I asked you over dinner who the audience is for this book. Um, it's, it's, um, it sounds like anybody interested in color could use this as a reference and, Absolutely. and a jumping off point. Absolutely. Uh, it could be wonderful for students or people who are new to color that really need to understand the basic concepts behind it. But in addition to that, I also include some psychology of color, color and marketing, and most of all, color and mood. Mm -hmm. what, what moods are imparted by color combinations, right. because colors are rarely used by all by themselves. They're always combined with other colors. Well, and I feel like having that language, it just empowers a, a creative person, mm -hmm. uh, a designer or an a event planner or you know somebody who's trying to bring a customer along or educate a client. So Exactly. It gives you those tools mm -hmm. to use. And uh, it's a jump start 
mm-hmm. for those who are already in the color field and know a great deal about it, what it helps to do is to validate their own, you know, intrinsic gut level feeling. There was something you mentioned about the book when we were speaking earlier, too. Is it um, helping people understand how to combine colors or... Um, or was, I can't remember yes. there was some trends or something you talked right. about. Right. Yeah. yeah, we do talk about trends, okay. how trends come about, and we also talk about how to combine colors. Okay, okay. that's important because I do think what so. it does is to take it the next step beyond. You know, we can use certain examples, like um, rich is one of the mm-hmm. one of the examples in the book. Uh, when we think rich, we think of chocolate mousse, we think of wonderful wines, we think of all kinds of gorgeous colors, but we need to take it to the next level. What's the next step? Uh, A rich color could also be an olive in a martini glass. I love that. With a red pimento. Exactly. (laughs) So it adds some sophistication. It mm -hmm. takes it beyond what our general thought process is for that particular color. So these are like um, mood words that colors are attached to. Exactly. That would help. I think that would help tremendously anybody who's in the creative field, who's trying to put a project together to have some way to, they might instinctively know something, but then how do you describe it and how do you explain it or sell it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's great. I'm excited to know about that new book and we'll have um, the cover and the links um, in the show notes for that. And then for those of you who are interested in digging a little deeper, uh, Lee teaches two intensive workshops uh, each year at her studio on Bainbridge Island, which is outside of Seattle. Um, and you've got one coming up in April. And this is, how many years have you been doing these workshops? Oh, I think I've been doing the workshop about 15 years Okay, mm-hmm. okay. And you, I know you are a transplant to see the Seattle area, but yes. you probably did it before you got here, yes, too. Yes, um, what is the, yes. Describe the workshop and, and um, a little bit about who would come to that and what they would take away from that. Well, interestingly, we get quite a cross-section. We get people who are in the creative arts. We get people who just simply have a passion for color and want to learn more about it. Uh, We have people who work for companies that need to justify Mm. the colors that they are choosing Mm. and how to how to, you know, create the tools that are going to convince others that they're choosing the right color. Mm-hmm. Like advertising and marketing kind exactly. of product development. Exactly. Yeah. So it's quite a cross-section, which makes for a fascinating class because you get people uh, not only in different industries, but you also get people from all over the world. We've mm-hmm. had people from Greece, from Spain. Uh, it, it's just amazing they to They come me. here for this. They come here wow. to Bainbridge Island for the class. And it's a four-day workshop, is mm-hmm. that right? Yes, it's a four-day workshop. Wow, and it sounds like it's a pretty intimate group, and you're, you're keeping the number relatively small. So 20 that, to 25 okay. is all we take, yes. Okay, and um, the the just hearing that color um, touches every industry and touches every, you know, kind of category that somebody might be in is exciting to me because I think it was always just the, you know, the, the fashion runway or the paint companies and like they had the lock on color. And now you're, you're basically giving people permission to engage in color and Absolutely. use it as that a business tool. That is such tool. an important point. That yeah. really is an important point. Not to get so myopic that mm. you're only looking at your own industry. Mm-hmm. You've got to look out at the mm-hmm. bigger picture to see where these influences are coming from and how color is dealt with and how it's thought of uh, in various areas from different areas of the world. Well, it's like a language that you're teaching people. And once you have that language... You can do your own job and your own profession mm-hmm. more with more authority, I would think. Exactly. Um, well, I have so many more things I want to ask you about, but we're kind of running out of time. So I guess I want to 
I want to talk about two things. One is, what are you working on now as you look to, are you already looking to 2019? Um, what is happening in the year of Lee Eisman? I mean, you've, it's only January, but I bet you've got folders that you're stuffing ideas into. Absolutely. I know you're not going to reveal <laughs> anything, but how do, you, how do you go about that? Well, we have to look at so many influences. Mm. We look at the film industry. Uh, we look at what is happening in the art world. That's obvious. Of course, fashion is yeah. an important consideration. Yeah. Uh, but there are other areas we look at as well. What are the new technologies? What's mm. coming down the pike that mm. might create a difference in color? Mm. Um, I'm creating a talk now for um, an international houseware show that I do two keynotes for every year. And one of the things that I show them is the influence of the floral industry. Oh. Because people in the floral industry are so creative, and they will take that next step, and they will put colors together that perhaps they, you know, less adventurous won't do. So I'm always pointing to the floral industry as some place that we look for color inspiration. Mm. There is a color intelligence that um, comes from... I don't know, responding to what Mother Nature produces, which exactly. is basically what floral is, right? Exactly. It comes right from Mother Nature, and, and florists understand how to mm. take advantage of that. Or not just florists, but also people who have an interest in right. putting the colors together in, in florals. Uh, we even look at, and I know this sounds strange to people, we look at the new cars that are going to be on the marketplace. What colors are they being done in? Because the finishes on the cars also reveal color variations that we are not that familiar with mm -hmm. that we need to look at. I think that's so true. Like sometimes you'll see a car and it'll be on your consciousness and all of a sudden you'll start seeing mm -hmm. a, a, an odd color on the on the highway that mm -hmm. you've never seen before. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think, did those people consult with you? Like where did those car manufacturers get that, make that crazy decision? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. They're exactly. subscribing to your to your forecast, I'm imagining. Yes, that, that's part of it. <laughs> and you probably told them three years ago to use that. <laughs> exactly, that's, exactly. That's, so we, we yeah. look at many, many different areas to come up with uh, the colors for, for the future. Uh-huh. And you told me that... Um, you know, it's it's always revealed around the beginning of December, and so mm -hmm. be, do people pester you and ask you to like? Oh. They try to ply you with martinis, so you'll oh, tell them. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> even your best friends, <laughs> even my best friends, and it's become sort of you know, it's fun because yeah. people will try to grill me to find out what uh -huh. direction I'm going down. Uh -huh. But I I have learned to have a very poker face when we talk I bet. about it. But I guess I'm curious to know like how. Um, do you kind of go down to the, the wire, down to the last minute, and kind of, uh, or do you pretty much, you, it, something yeah. tells you that this is right? Yeah, yeah. Wow. What we do, we, we start to gather all the information, all the research, put it together. And then by, I would say, summer of the year before, mm -hmm. we're, we're pretty convinced that we are headed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. And then as we move along, we gather even more proof points, as we call Got them, it. To, to verify sure. it. Well, I don't want to obs I'm sorry I started obsessing about 2019. It's only the second week of January, and you arrived at dinner in this beautiful ultraviolet ensemble, including in the frames of your glasses. <laughs> I'm just so fascinated. Did you wear green, green frame glasses last year? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. See, I'm wearing green frame glasses. Yes, I, I love it. Okay, you are an inspiration. I I. I want to live in purple this year, in ultraviolet. Um, and it'll look great on you, by the way. Good. And anybody <laughs> listening to this, um, I want you to send me your 
photos of your ultraviolet bouquets because Lee will, she'd like to see them. And uh, maybe we'll do some kind of in social media together because I feel like that is a color that um, is available in a wide array of floral selections and options, even foliage, right? So um, that's your challenge, listeners. And uh, Lee, is there anything else I didn't ask you that you want to make sure we include in the podcast today? Well, I think I've already re- referred to the the conversation uh-huh. that we start about color. Mm-hmm. That is really always what I'm after, to get people okay. to talk about it, because mm-hmm. it helps them to unleash their imaginations, mm-hmm. to think more about it, and to get more involved in it. And that, to me, is the absolute joy of color. And anybody can do that, right? Yes, you can just absolutely. Engage in that. Absolutely. Um, and then... While we close, I wanted to just ask you, what was that color of the millennium that you alluded to back in 1999? What did you predict for 2000? Do you it remember? Was, we called it millennium blue. Okay. And it really was the color of the sky, the color of the heavens, what, you know, what is out there that's ahead for us. Um, it wasn't the purple. We weren't there yet. We mm-hmm. needed something a little more gentle because mm-hmm. we needed something that would help to alleviate any anxieties sure. that people had. So we went into a softer a softer blue, and it really did hit a chord, no question. That is so so amazing. It's so fascinating. And I guess people could go online and go back and look at every um, every year's selection. And, and maybe if you were a student of um, cultural history, you would see the reasons why that was so perfect. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm excited. I'm excited to he- for people to hear the story of Ultraviolet. To, we'll have photos of that and some of the things that you've already released um, that people can kind of draw information and inspiration from. If you haven't, like I said, if you've been under, under a rock and you haven't heard this, now's the time to embrace Ultraviolet. And uh, I'm just delighted to introduce you to the listeners of the Slow Flowers podcast. And I hope some of them buy your book and maybe take your workshop. That would be lovely. Okay. Thank you so much. You're Lee. very welcome. so much for joining me today. I invite you to take the challenge that Lee and I discussed, which means in the coming few weeks, please send me your floral designs featuring ultraviolet toned botanicals so I can share them with Lee. She's eager to include a few of your images on her social media channels. And of course, you'll be credited and tagged. You can send those images to me at Deborah at slowflowers.com. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 271,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for downloading, listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. As the Slow Flowers movement gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower industry, the momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and invite you to show your thanks with a donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button at deborahprinzing.com in the right column. 
Thank you to our sponsors who have supported Slow Flowers and all our programs, including this podcast, American Flowers Week, the slowflowers.com online directory to American-grown flowers, as well as our new channels, Slow Flowers Journal and the 2018 Slow Flowers Summit. They are Certified American-Grown Flowers. The Certified American-Grown Program and Label provide a guarantee for designers and consumers on the source of their flowers. Take pride in your flowers and buy with confidence. Ask for Certified American-Grown Flowers. To learn more, visit americangrownflowers.org. Arctic Alaska Peonies, a cooperative of 50 family farms in the heart of Alaska, providing high-quality, American-grown peony flowers during the months of July and August. Visit them today at arcticalaskapeonies.com. The Seattle Wholesale Growers Market, a farmer-owned cooperative committed to providing the very best the Pacific Northwest has to offer in cut flowers, foliage, and plants. The Growers Market's mission is to foster a vibrant marketplace that sustains local flower farms and provides top-quality products and services to the local floral industry. Find them at seattlewholesalegrowersmarket.com. Longfield Gardens provides home gardeners with high-quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. Visit them at longfield-gardens.com. Syndicate Sales, an American manufacturer of vases and accessories for the professional florist. Look for the American flag icon to find Syndicate's USA-made products and join the Syndicate Stars loyalty program at syndicatesales.com. Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds, supplied to farms large and small, and even backyard cutting gardens like mine. Check them out at johnny'sseeds.com. The Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers, formed in 1988, ASCFG was created to educate, unite, and support commercial cut flower growers. Its mission is to help growers produce high-quality floral material and to foster and promote the local availability of that product. Learn more at ASCFG.org. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging on to iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at kinetictreefitness.com. Music.